This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in New York and comes from a renowned British family related to the Roosevelts. After attending school back in England, she studied at Newcastle University, specialising in English literature and history of art. My guest worked in some of New York's finest galleries before setting up the online arts magazine Russian Art and Culture, but then she turned to politics, which runs in the family. Following two unsuccessful attempts, she was elected as the Conservative MP for Stafford in 2019. In 2022, she gave birth to her daughter, an experience which she later spoke publicly about in the Commons due to her traumatic birth. That speech won her Speech of the Year at the Spectator's Parliamentarian Awards last year, and she is now involved in a campaign to draw more attention to the problems here. My guest today is Thea Clark. Thea, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, your first ever podcast. It is, Katie. I'm delighted to be here, especially as a reader of The Spectator, I should say. <laughs> yeah, and, and soon to be a listener. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, now, the first question we ask in this podcast is uh, one we ask everyone, which is, would you describe yours as a happy childhood? You were born in New York. Uh, I was. Um, and I should say, yes, I, I absolutely did. Um, I grew up in a, a beautiful rural village in the Cotswolds. It's a very famous village. It's on lots of postcards. It's a very beautiful part of the UK to live. Um, and I think growing up in the countryside really suited me. Um, so I spent a lot of time outdoors. I lived right on a river next to a woodland. I was endlessly sort of up in tree houses with my brother and sister and going out in rowing boats and going on sort of famous five expeditions with picnic lunches and, and just really enjoying being outside. Sounds delightful. <laughs> and you, as I mentioned, you, um, growing up in your family, I think your brother is an Olympian. Is that right? Yes, he is. I think it's fair to say my uh, brother, who's an Olympic athlete, took all the genes when it comes to uh, sports. And uh, yeah, we, as I said, had a very nice childhood. Um, although sadly, my parents did get divorced when I was at school. So that was a, a tricky time. But other than that, I, I did have a, a great time. So was it quite a high performing family? Was there a sense that you were all a bit competitive with each other? You all go on to do great things? Obviously, not in your case, quite an Olympic medal. <laughs> well, I, I think it's fair to say that my brother has run a lot more medals than anyone else in the family. Um, but it's definitely a very competitive streak, I would say. Although uh, I'd say my brother coming... Um, fourth in the Olympic final, I'd say, is a much more impressive than being a backbench MP. So I think he definitely deserves more credit. Um, and what about, what were you like at school? Were you, um, obviously we'll use the term girly swat, um, reclaim it. Um, were, were you very, uh, you know, buried in the books or were you rebellious? What was your vibe? So I would say I was absolutely terrible at all sports. Um, yeah, me too. And uh, also likewise terrible at music. Um, I mainly spent a lot of time actually doing drama. Um, my favourite thing was doing school plays. Less on the stage actually more kind of behind the scenes doing props and set design that kind of stuff um and I've always loved reading I actually went on to study English literature as my degree now, I mentioned that you went to Newcastle University um did you get much involved in student politics at this point 
Absolutely not. I'm afraid to say I'm one of those MPs that had no political ambition at all when I was a student. Um, I didn't even do politics A-level. And when I was at university, I was very much focused on my studies and enjoying drama and meeting friends. And I'm afraid I didn't go to a single meeting of the Conservatives. (laughs) Uh, But I I really kind of fell into it more through um, national campaigning. Um, I suppose the only thing I did was I did do debating. And I think that gives you an interest in current affairs and just knowing what's going on in the world. Um, And that was always my interest was more kind of the international sphere and and what was happening globally. And did you feel an affinity, I suppose, as many on this podcast have done, you know, trying to lead the student Labour or Conservative society and, of course, just having an affinity towards one of the parties? Did you feel as though you were aligned to a party growing up or did you not really think about party politics? To be honest, I didn't really think about party politics at all. I can literally tell you when I joined the Conservative Party, it was under David Cameron in 2010. Um, and the specific moment for me was the election expenses scandal. And I remember just being absolutely horrified at the behaviour of some of the MPs. And I remember about the duck moats and all the expenses. And that's really why I joined the party. That was the first year. So I really wasn't involved in politics at all when I was younger. Um, it was really, I suppose, later in life, A, when you start paying tax and you realise how the government is taking a significant proportion. Um, but also just starting to realise how government literally impacts on every part of your life. And I think it was only when I was a bit older as a student I started to, to realise that. And you talked to then about uh, a little bit earlier about kind of foreign affairs, international affairs, and how that was probably where you initially obviously saw uh, the impact of politics more. Talk to me about your career in international development and how, how that came about when you started travelling. Yeah, so I think um, international development has had a huge impact on me as a a politician. I think, firstly, I really joined the Conservative Party because I really believe that they were the party for aspiration opportunity. And it was really quite shocking to me to spend quite a bit of time in sub-Saharan Africa and see incredible, desperate poverty. And I've uh, worked on a a couple of projects, mainly in Africa. Um, I also went out to Sierra Leone after the Ebola crisis. And you can imagine what it was like um, working in a local school in West Africa when they just had this terrible pandemic and sort of working with the school children there. Um, And it really made me realise that actually what the UK does in supporting countries overseas is really critical. And obviously that was before our own pandemic with COVID. And I think it's just reinforced to me that everything that happens globally, whether it's climate change or migration, are all global challenges and you can only focus on them if you work together as countries. So that's why I joined the International Development Select Committee as an MP. I'm almost skipping forward now in my timeline, so forgive me, but I just want to on that. I mean, one of the things that obviously happened in Parliament was the cut to international aid, which did go through the Commons. Was, was that tough for you? Absolutely. I mean, that's probably the most difficult vote that I've faced as an MP. I've always been very out and proud supporter of the aid budget, and it was really difficult for me to support the government. Um, But I did totally accept it was a totally unprecedented situation. I mean, the amount of money we'd have to spend on COVID in the vaccination programme, absolutely, we had to fund that. But that that was really difficult for me. And I do continue to believe that Britain is a force for good in the world. And uh, I really hope that, you know, we will get back up to to 0.7 as soon as we can. Then let's talk about obviously deciding to go into politics. I'm right to say you campaigned for Rory Stewart, a rival podcaster, in 2010. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think it's fair to say that David Cameron and Rory are the, the people that recruited me to the Conservative Party. Um, and so, did you meet Rory Stewart through international aid work or separately? Um, so actually, originally I met Rory because I knew about his charity in Afghanistan and I was a, a graduate and I was interested in the arts, as you know, and he was doing a lot of work in the Kabul Museum. So I actually wrote to Rory about going to volunteer for him in Kabul and I never made it to 
Kabul. Instead, I made it to rainy Penrith. Uh, and it's fair to say he really taught me how election campaigns work. So it was the time before he was an MP and he was a new candidate. And I spent six months sort of pounding the streets in rural Cumbria for Rory's campaign. Um, so a great loss to me that he's left the party because obviously he's the, the reason that I'm sat here today as a, as a Tory MP. Do you listen to his podcast regularly? I have listened to a few episodes, but I have to say as an MP, it's quite difficult to find the time to listen to too much. So you follow Rory Stewart, you see how campaigning works. And then is that the point when you start to think, actually, I would like to be an MP? Or what was the moment where it clicked when you thought? So I never got involved in politics to stand as a member of parliament myself. That really happened kind of accidentally. Um, I first campaigned on the No to AV referendum campaign. Um, and I became a sort of youth organiser in London under David Cameron and would sort of work with students to recruit them and explain why they should um, vote in that referendum. And it was really probably that experience plus the general election working for Rory. And um, I think my first reflection was there didn't seem to be that many people in politics who'd had a life outside the bubble. And I obviously said I didn't study politics. Um, I didn't work in politics. I was working in the arts and I thought it was really important to get involved and have those of us who kind of run your own small business, you know, had to have employees and to be honest, been outside the Westminster bubble. And I'm really glad I had that experience first before I became an MP. I suppose on the No to AV campaign, I think, you know, it was quite low turnout in that vote in the sense that lots of people, I think if you picture your average person of the street who doesn't follow politics that much and said, what do you think about AV? They might not know. So what was it which drew you to that campaign? Well, it was more, it was the first referendum in my lifetime. Yeah. So that was what interested me, was that yeah. the, the public yeah. was being asked a question. It was less what the question was, but more the fact that we were being asked. Um, that goes back to my earlier point that I really didn't appreciate how much politics impacts on people's lives. I mean, every week I'm being asked to vote on things which literally impact on everything from the tax you pay to the schools you go to, to investing in my high street. Um, but it was only really when I started working on campaigns, and I kind of saw up close, this is what politics um, does and, and this is why it matters. Um, so you go through that and then you obviously that gives you that experience and then where does the jump come in terms is is it around that time you joined the Conservative Party in 2010 and then is it women to win and what is it that makes you start to think you'll you'll give it a go yeah so firstly a massive credit to women to win and they definitely scooped up candidates like me who didn't have a background in politics Um, and Baroness Jenkins in particular was really supportive of getting me a mentor and advising me on sort of seat selections Um, I think to be honest if you are not from politics working out how to become an MP is really quite challenging it's a very complicated process so it took several years to sort of get onto the candidates list and then um, you do your hard work and your hard graft hopefully standing in a, a seat that you might not win um, so I stood in Bristol East twice in 2015 and 2017 um, and obviously now I'm an MP in Stafford but I do think those years on the streets in Bristol campaigning against a you know high profile Labour MP was really important experience because it just taught you how sort of grassroots campaigning really works. Now, you are related to Jacob Rees-Mogg. Did he give you any help? So Jacob is married to my mum's sister. And uh, obviously, when I was in Bristol, he's literally the next door MP in Somerset. So he was very supportive and did lots of door knocking. Although I think it's fair to say that Jacob and I are at different uh, ends of the Conservative Party spectrum, if I I can put it that way. I was thinking, if we're talking Rory Stewart and David Cameron on one side, and then we have Jacob Rees-Mogg, Good company, but obviously absolutely slightly so, different uh, issues. J- Jacob is, of course, in the ERG, and I'm in the One Nation. So we're in different caucuses, but uh, we know we, we agree to talk about neutral issues like uh, cricket, which is his first love. <laughs> um, so you mentioned obviously the, uh, getting selected for Stafford, and then you enter Parliament in 2019. Obviously, it is one of those things where you've had a lot of experience from going for the previous seats. I think there's almost a badge of honour amongst lots of MPs when they've 
had to work for it over, over different ones. But was there anything that surprised you about Parliament when, when you entered? Yeah, well, firstly, getting selected was um, really challenging. I haven't spoken about this before, but my father actually died on the Monday and I had my seat interview on the Saturday. And I remember getting the call from the association chairman, say you've been shortlisted and you're in the final, and actually um, literally hung up on the association chairman and said, you know, I'm literally just registering my father's death certificate. I don't know if I can even attend the selection. So I had a really difficult week. Um, But actually, it just reinforced to me that that is what I wanted to do and it was important to me. Becoming a new MP is an extraordinary experience. I mean, I won at about four o'clock in the morning. You get handed an envelope and you open it and it basically is like your HMRC sort of payslip saying you're now on the payroll. And I think people assume that you go in and you have this huge team and staff and a website up and running and your telephone, your inbox. And the answer is you have absolutely nothing. And you arrive at Parliament on the Monday morning and you've already got a huge backlog of people trying to contact you. Um, And it's a bit like coming to sort of Hogwarts because Parliament is such an extraordinary palace and you're working um, in this very unusual building. And it it really is a baptism of fire. I mean, I think in those first three months, I basically had no team and it was me answering casework at sort of one o'clock in the morning, trying not to get lost walking around Parliament between votes. Um, And it it really is a totally unique and, and privileged workplace. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And I suppose just just to go back to your father briefly, I mean, that must have been really tough. Did you, was it was it something he must have known you wanted to be an MP? Was it something he supported? Absolutely. So my um, dad knew that I had uh, applied for Stafford. He sadly didn't know that I obviously made it and and became the MP. But uh, no, I think my family always quite amused that I wanted to go into politics. They were like everyone hates members of parliament why on earth do you want to do the job where you're going to get trolled you're going to get death threats you're going to get abuse but actually for me i very much see politics as public service and you know you'd go into the armed forces to you know support your country and for me that's no different i mean there's no way i'm going to run 30 miles in the british army but i will certainly um you know do a campaign and and support people in parliament so you enter in a very big uh intake when it comes to the 2019 intake at least compared to 2017 um so you're actually in quite a, a big mass of MPs and am I right I might actually have just lost my mind were you one of the admins on the whatsapp group <laughs> I'm the original admin of the 109 that's yeah but yes exactly that's what I'm thinking yeah. of okay great now I'm feeling good about my memory and was that originally it was the wrong number on the group wasn't it Is yeah down so, to your bad arithmetic uh, so no <laughs> what, what happened to be fair Mark Wallace has taken credit for this um so I was a new MP we got elected in December and over um new year I decided to set up a WhatsApp group because so many MPs were texting me different questions and everyone was asking me the same thing about, you know, how did you recruit your office manager or X, Y, Z. So um, I basically just spent like a day adding over 100 MPs profile numbers to a WhatsApp group and it became extremely useful actually in the pandemic then three months later because we all had a kind of collective group. But the um, the number that had been reported for our intake was actually incorrect. So I called it the 109 because the news article had said it was 109. I think it turned out it was 107. But as I committed to the name, we are now forever known as the 109. And given there have been so many by-elections since, our number's gone up and down, but we are committing. (laughs) And it's interesting your point, which is just, I think particularly when you're a new block and you're learning all the things, being in a place where you can speak to a lot Mm. is very helpful. There's been a lot on kind of how whatsapp works for government whether government decisions should be made on it but certainly in terms of organizing in parliament and i think probably now like having a child do you think it's quite a helpful way to know what's going on 
Definitely. And I think before as an MP, I did not appreciate the volume of correspondence you get. I mean, on a busy day, I could get 1000 emails. And that's before I spoke in the chamber, before I've attended a debate or gone to a vote or gone to any meetings or select committees. So I think WhatsApp's just quite helpful because it just allows you to flag what's going on and also to keep in touch with colleagues. Um, and bearing in mind, I was an MP for three years during the pandemic. I mean, it was absolutely essential because we were all separated up in our constituencies. And we didn't have that same kind of bonding that every other intake would have had of being together for the first year so actually I think WhatsApp became really crucial. Yeah and when it comes to I suppose to the pandemic as you say very strange experience being an MP who comes in for the first time in 2019 soon after that you're as you say cut off you're not in parliament you've got to know some of your colleagues but you haven't had the same experience other intakes would have and you now have some uh, you know anonymous sources who will say oh the 29 intakes really you know rebellious and they often blame it on this idea um, that because everyone was, you know, uh, not in Parliament enough, they couldn't, like, learn the rules. Do you think your intake's unruly? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure the Whip's office would take a strong view on that. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a fair point that because we weren't all together early on, everyone was maybe a bit more um, fragmented and doing their own different thing. But I also do think it's a reflection. If you look at my intake, there's a huge number of people like me that didn't have a background in politics. So I think that's partly why is it's that kind of new culture where you've been a primary school teacher, you'd worked um, you know, as a coal miner, you had a very different background to a traditional Conservative MP. So I think that's something to be celebrated, that there's a much more diverse intake, I'd say, and also younger. Exactly. And I also think there's always something which is just, obviously, people fall in different ways. But if you want to modernise Parliament, which mm. some people say they want to do, then it does often mean you move further away from traditional whipping or, or some of the, I suppose, some of the... I think if, if you have things where people can work more remotely or just in the sense of MPs becoming more independent the system does just end up changing a little bit to reflect yeah. the new intakes. Absolutely. So I was also a beneficiary of what's called the proxy vote. So for six months after I had the birth of my daughter, I was able to vote remotely. And I cannot tell you what a difference that made. I mean, as a new mum, trying to breastfeed, I had a very difficult birth. And then uh, trying to have to be on parliamentary state to vote late at night would have just been so challenging. Um, and that was only brought in very recently in the last few years. And it's really people like, you know, Tulip Sadiq who are campaigning to make yeah. sure that that was brought in. And I can't thank them enough because because as a new mum, I mean, that made the biggest difference. And really, we need to look at that, I think, going forward so yeah. to support mums in Parliament. Do you think there's ways to make uh, to probably go further in terms of... Because we had Tulip Sadiq on the podcast previously talking about some of this stuff. But do you think Parliament can modernise more, I think, for kind of working mothers and so forth? Absolutely. So um, there's so much more. I mean, I, I absolutely think we are the Parliament that sets the laws that businesses have to follow to be more family-friendly. And I find it deeply ironic that we are the workplace that doesn't seem to follow our own rules. And, and I really think we need to talk about it more. I mean, I'm only the 56th female MP to give birth while elected. And I think that partly goes to the heart of the problem of why we're not talking about this stuff. Um, and it is incredibly difficult. I mean, people don't think about the fact that you're living in two places, you're commuting back and forth to your constituency and then to Parliament. I'm incredibly lucky that my husband basically looks after our daughter, um, you know, and I see parents in the voting lobby, you know, like myself on FaceTime, talking to your children when they go to bed. You know, I miss bedtime four times a week and it's really difficult. And I think we've got to look at making Parliament more family friendly because at the end of the day, women are 50% of the population and we don't have enough female MPs. And I do think we're putting them off if we don't make it more appropriate. So hopefully by MPs like myself, having a baby and, and being elected will start to, to change the conversation. Yeah, because for example, in the Scottish Parliament, they 
like you do more remote voting absolutely as a general rule. so i'm I, I totally understand why some of my colleagues want to retain in-person voting and i do think grabbing a minister for a few minutes in the corridor on your way to vote is a really essential part of democracy but if you're seriously ill, I mean, for, for colleagues like, for example, Tracy Crouch, who obviously very publicly talked about having cancer, for them to be coming in and voting at, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning when they're undergoing chemotherapy, those are the types of things we need to do. And to be fair to the speaker, he has now brought in things like a, an illness proxy. Um, but to be honest, I find it extraordinary. It's taken so long to bring that in. And it's such a good thing. Now, you mentioned becoming a mother while being an MP. And I want to talk about that process and the work you're doing now but just before we do there's often um we're talking about modernizing parliament Mm. there are some voters and even perhaps some colleagues who also who almost uh seem to be quite skeptical of the idea of an mp being pregnant a woman and being pregnant in the sense if you look at that low number perhaps that is for a reason how did you encounter lots of people being very positive when you became pregnant or did you have any any of that to be honest it was a a totally mixed bag I think there is a real challenge for members of parliament because we are different to every other job in Britain where we're really not technically entitled to ordinary maternity leave and that's partly because we have no designated proxy so whilst I was able to vote remotely for six months there was no one who can speak in the chamber on my behalf no one who can tend to set committees on my behalf you can't pick up the phone and call a minister so I did have to work the whole way through my maternity leave and that is really challenging I mean, I remember um, I had a very difficult birth. I spent nearly a week in hospital. I remember being quite upset that one constituent had left quite an angry message on the constituency voicemail saying, you know, you had your birthday a whole week ago. Why can't I have a surgery appointment? And and really, I was quite shocked by that. And it's like they kind of forget at the end of the day that I'm a human and I've had a, a small child and actually I'd had a really difficult time and I was recovering from quite major surgery. Um, and I think it's really important that we are allowed that time and space to spend time with your baby. And my team did a fantastic job dealing with urgent constituency stuff. Um, and I had an extraordinary time to be on maternity leave because... I left under Boris Johnson and came back under Rishi Sunak. So we had three prime ministers um, and also the death of the Queen. Um, So it was obviously never a moment that my phone was off and I was sort of trying to juggle a screaming baby and trying to learn to breastfeed and recovering from surgery all at the same time as trying to sort of run my office at the same time. Um, did you get to vote in the leadership election? So I actually came down specially to vote in the leadership election and then obviously events sort of overtook us. But uh, yes, I did, did come down to Westminster and, and make an exception. And you voted for? <laughs> I did vote for Rishi Sunak, yes. Yeah, I, I actually spoke to another Tory MP who was on maternity leave and therefore missed the entire Liz Truss premiership, <laughs> um, such such was its length. Now, um, let's talk about the birth of your daughter, It was ultimately a traumatic process. Can you just tell listeners what happened? Absolutely. So my daughter arrived two weeks late and I was booked in for induction. um, And I had a very long labour of uh, nearly 40 hours. I did give birth naturally, but um, I started very heavily bleeding after delivery. So I got separated from my daughter and I got rushed into the emergency theatre for surgery. I spent nearly two hours awake in the theatre and they wouldn't give me a general anaesthetic because I'd already had uh, an epidural. And I can tell you that was one of the most frightening experiences of my life. Um, And I remember seeing the faces of sort of the the midwives and people in the room thinking, God, it's not looking good. And I just obviously been separated from my daughter and come out of this this huge experience of being in labour. And I really thought I was going to die. Um, and obviously my husband was very traumatised as well by the whole experience. 
And then when I came out, um, no one actually even told us where our daughter was. So we didn't even know what had happened to her. And I was put into a, a side room. And uh, I remember pressing the emergency button when um, my daughter was in the cot next to me and she was screaming. And I was paralyzed from the waist down. I couldn't move. I was hooked up to a drip and a catheter and was obviously not in a great way after the operation. And uh, this lady came in and she just said, not my baby, not my problem. And just literally walked out and left me there. And it was really that experience that made me quite shocked about some of the culture in our hospitals. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, compassion is free. That doesn't require more government funding. And uh, I then decided to share publicly my story when I came back from maternity leave. And I was really shocked to hear some of the stories that mums had written into me. Um, everything from sort of birth injuries like my own. I suffered what's called a, a third degree tear. And to be honest, I'd never heard of birth injuries. It was not something that was mentioned to me when I was pregnant. It was certainly not something friends and family had talked about. And there seems to be a real taboo around talking about childbirth and things that can go wrong. And the reason I ended up starting this campaign on birth trauma was that there seemed to be such a focus on the pregnant mum and then the baby when they arrive. But then we completely forget about the mum and the fact that they might have had a really difficult experience too, either with the physical side like myself or with psychological trauma afterwards. Um, and that's really why I've started my new campaign. And that was the speech you gave in the chamber? Yes. Yeah. Which is one we then gave you an award at Parliamentarian for. It felt like during that session you were receiving support from MPs. Yeah, so I was really touched actually to, to firstly receive the Spectators Award, but also for the number of MPs that supported my debate. So I remember going to pitch to the Backbench Business Committee about why I should be allocated time in Parliament to talk about birth trauma. And my pitch was very simple. It was in a thousand years, the British Parliament, we have never held a debate on birth trauma. And I really found that quite shocking to be the case. So I led this debate um, in the autumn and it was fantastic to have a load of mums that came to support me and, and watch in the chamber. And I think I was really struck by a few things. Firstly, how cross-party this campaign's been. So every MP who's been coming up to me from all sides of the House has always been supportive and, and how can they help? But also we really seem to have started a national conversation about how to provide better aftercare for mums. And I'm really pleased that the government's obviously launched the women's health strategy. I'm lobbying very hard for them to add uh, birth trauma in. And, uh, and I hope that's something the new Secretary of State will, will do. So you're obviously lobbying Victoria Atkins, a former guest of this podcast. What else can we expect to see from you doing on this? So I've set up a new all-party parliamentary group, um, which is cross-party for MPs. And one of the things I was struck by was the number of stories I was being sent by mums. But there was no specific way to gather that evidence. Evidence. So I've just literally announced a new national inquiry into birth trauma. It's the first ever in the history of the British Parliament. And we're really encouraging people from across the UK to write in, whether they're mothers or their partners or their healthcare professionals. Um, and we're very much inspired by Australia, which had done an inquiry last year on birth trauma. Um, so we'll be taking evidence sessions in Parliament for the next couple of weeks. And then we'll be writing a report with recommendations to the government. So to be honest, when I first did that interview as a mum, just sharing my own experience of my daughter, I never never expected that nearly a year later I'd be launching a, a national inquiry but it just shows the power of sharing your personal story and that um, you know lots of members of the public have now come forward with their own. Yeah, and it's interesting too how we've had it a few times on this podcast just often the issues that people think they'll go in and talk about when they're in parliament. Yeah. That is so true so I think if anyone asked what Theo is interested in people would always say probably foreign affairs if they said I'd be an NHS campaigner they would say that would be the least likely topic <laughs> I would have picked um, but actually I think it really goes to the heart of the point of you know as a backbench MP we've only got limited resources that we can use I'm not a government minister um, but I can sort of draw attention to issues in parliament um, and I think what's really striking about this campaign is it's become an organ 
organic and taken off in a way that I could never have planned or predicted. And that's just purely because of the public just sharing the story and, and asking us to do more. Uh, we're speaking on the week of the MRP poll, <laughs> um, which is a, a poll in the Telegraph, which um, is suggesting it, that it could be a 1997-style defeat for the Tory party. How are you feeling about your party's prospects in an election year? So I'm actually a lot more positive. I mean, every single week I get sent a different poll and they all have a different answer. Um, my personal view is we've actually got a narrow road where having a, a general election victory is still possible for the Conservatives. I mean, I think we've all just seen a week's long time in politics. We've still got a huge amount of time to go to the general election. Um, I'm very much fighting my campaign to win and I think Stafford will remain Conservative the next election. And the final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast, um, I'm not sure if it relates to your campaign or, or other parts of your life, but what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Oh, that is a hard question, Katie. Actually, I, I know what I would say. It's I was very much told not to study English literature and history of art at university. And I think there was a real disparity against the humanities saying, oh, you'll never get a real job if you study that. Go and do engineering or maths or something useful. And actually, I say the complete opposite. I'm doing a literacy campaign as an MP for World Book Day coming up. Um, and actually, you know, now I have to read and write speeches all the time. I say doing an English literature degree was extremely helpful. As a fellow arts degree holder, um, I will support that. Thank you, Theo.